I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. In Matthew, chapter 13, Jesus told a parable about a man who sowed wheat in his field, and then while he was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. And when the crop came up, there were all those tares in the field. And his servants came to him and said, Shall we gather up the tares? And the man said, No, you might root up the wheat. Let them both grow together until the harvest, and then gather up my wheat and take it into the barn and gather up the tares so that they will be burned in the fire. Now, Jesus made it clear that he was talking about more than farming when he told that story because that story really represented a microcosm of this world. And he went on to explain that the field is the earth and the enemy that came is Satan. And the wheat represents the sons of the kingdom and the tares represent the sons of Satan and the sower is the son of man and the reapers are angels and the harvest is the end of the age. And he went on to say that the sons of Satan will be taken and will be cast into the furnace of fire and the sons of God will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. There's a harvest day coming. There is a day of reckoning coming. And Revelation chapter 14 depicts it for us. In this chapter, we're going to see the reapers coming upon the earth with their sickles, harvesting the crop of the earth. And we'll see some people rejoicing in heaven. We're going to see other people being tormented in the flames of hell. This is a chapter that paints a vivid picture of what is to come. Uh, it's a chapter that gives us a grim reminder of the eternal significance of what we choose in this life. And uh, I don't know of any other chapter that will bring you to the sober reality of a place called hell than Revelation chapter 14. And I have been affected this week by studying this chapter. Uh, I have gotten a fresh view of the righteous justice of God this week. And I hope and trust that you will come to a similar uh, impression this morning as we look at this chapter together. I want us to see five aspects of the harvest. <clears throat> I want us to see the first fruits, the final call, the foretaste, the forecast, and the format. First of all, we want to see the first fruits, and that's in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 14. Verse 1, And I looked... And behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Now, as we move out of chapter 13, with the whole world focused on a false lamb that we read about in chapter 13 and verse 11, John now sees the true Lamb, the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb, which we saw back in chapter 5, is standing as if slain. 
still bearing the marks of Calvary. And here in chapter 14, we see him standing on Mount Zion. Now, Bible teachers are divided on what this Mount Zion is because that's the name used throughout the Old Testament in reference to Jerusalem. It's a synonym of Jerusalem throughout the Old Testament. And some Bible teachers think that this is speaking of Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem. Now, if we take it that way, then what John is doing here is that he's looking ahead in time to the end of the tribulation period, and he's seeing the time when the Lamb comes back, and he's now standing in Jerusalem with these 144,000 witnesses. Now, that may be. But there's a second way to take Mount Zion. In fact, it's the only other time it's used in the New Testament. It's Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22. And there the writer of Hebrews says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The only other time it's used in the New Testament, Mount Zion is used in reference to that heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem. In fact, we'll read more about it when we come over to Revelation chapter 21 where John's going to say, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I prefer this second view. I prefer that when he talks about Mount Zion, he's talking about that heavenly Jerusalem. That's the only way it's used otherwise in the New Testament. That's what we're going to find it used in reference to in, in Revelation chapter 21. And uh, I think the context of this chapter will identify to us that John is talking about a heavenly scene here at the beginning of chapter 14. And so he sees the Lamb. He's standing on Mount Zion, which is the holy city of God in heaven. And notice who he's with. He is with the 144,000. Now they were introduced to us back in Revelation chapter 7. And there we saw that they are... 12,000 from each tribe of the children of Israel. 144,000. We saw that they had the seal of God on their foreheads. And we saw that the result of their ministry was that, that volumes of people from all the nations came to faith in the Lord Jesus. And so they are 144,000 Jewish witnesses who will be sealed with the seal of God. And here in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1, we find out what that seal of God is because it says they had the name of the Lamb and the name of His Father on their forehead. Now, Revelation chapter 7, when they were first identified, that event took place on earth. Now they're in heaven. So apparently their ministry is over. And one of the exciting things to me is that they started out with 144,000. They were sealed with the seal of God, which is a seal of protection and ownership. And now we find them in heaven at the end of their ministry. And how many are left? 143,997. No. 144,000. That's exciting to me. 144,000. He sets them apart. He seals them. None of them drop out. None of them are overtaken and influenced by the beast. All 144,000 end up standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. And that's exciting to, be, to me because the, the Scriptures teach us that as a believer, the Lord has sealed us as well. And Jesus said in John 6, 39, This is the will of my Father, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. What a great promise. Of all that the Father has given me, that's us. 
I won't lose anybody, but I'll raise them all up on the last day. And here's an exciting affirmation of that. 144,000 sealed. Now we see that same 144,000 standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. Now, as John sees the Lamb and the 144,000 on Mount Zion, he also hears something. Notice verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now, John hears a voice. It comes from heaven, and he's sort of at a loss to describe this voice. Uh, Mike Edmonds said, the, he went with the high schoolers this weekend, he said they kind of talk like John. You know, they're always saying, well, it's like this and it's like that. Well, John does that here. He's trying to describe this voice, and he says, it's loud like thunder, and it's, it's, it, it kind of sounds like many waters, kind of like standing at Niagara Falls, and it sounds like harpists harping. Now, that's quite a combination. I think what he's trying to tell us is it, it's it had a lot of volume. It was like thunder. It got my attention, but it wasn't just loud. It was, it was like many waters, and, and that's kind of like, it's in, in uh, ultra stereo, you know? It just kind of surrounds you. If you ever stand by a waterfall, it almost gets inside you, the sound. It's so, so close and intimate. And then he says, but it had tremendous quality. It's like harpus harping. And yet he calls it a voice. It's one voice. And he describes it in this many way, these many ways. You say, well, what is this voice? Well, look at verse 3. He says, and they sang... A new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. What is this voice? It's the 144,000. 144,000 are singing, and John describes it as one voice. Now, I like that, because that means when we get to heaven, we're going to have perfect harmony. 144,000 singing, and he's he, just one voice to John. It's so blended together, but it's like many waters because there's, there's all these different parts to it, and that's beautiful. And I think it reflects something else. You know, Jesus, or, or Paul wrote in, in Romans chapter 15 in verses 5 and 6, and he prayed for us, and he said, I pray that you may have one mind and one purpose so that with one voice you may glorify God. And it's our unity that allows us to really have that one voice to God. And our voices may not blend in perfect harmony today, but we can reflect the unity that expresses that one voice of worship to God. And in heaven, we will have that unity as well as that harmony one day. Now, notice again where they're singing. They're singing before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And so they are in heaven. This is where they're singing. Uh, but what's interesting to me is that the angels aren't singing and the elders aren't singing. And of course, the elders are of the church so that, and, and we're going to be there, so we're, not, we're apparently not singing either. Only the 144,000 are singing. And you say, well, why aren't the angels singing? And why will the church not be singing? Well, if you'll notice verse 3, it says they sang a new song. Now, I really like this because uh, I hear people say sometimes that uh, 
or, or impliedly sometimes that, that the old songs are more spiritual. You know, give me those old songs. Well, you know what? In heaven, there are going to be new songs. And God likes new songs. And uh, maybe the angels in the church didn't know this one. You know, they're, they're sitting there. They're not singing. And, uh, you know, we're going to be there. And you're going to lean over and go, was that in our hymn book? You know, a new song. But, you know, that's not really the reason given here. If you look again at verse 3 a little more closely, it says at the end, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Isn't that something? When you get to heaven, the 144,000 are going to be there. They're going to be singing a new song, and you won't be able to learn it. You say, well, I thought when we got to heaven, we'd know everything. Well, here's something you won't know. You won't be able to know this song. You say, well, what's going on here? What's well, exciting to me? And, and what it expresses to me is this, that in heaven, singing will be what God intends it to be. And singing will come from the heart. And in heaven, the mouth will only get to say what the heart and the experience, the life has gone through. And these 144,000 will have gone through something during the tribulation that only they experience. And so they will be the only ones who will be able to sing this song in praise to the Father. We won't be able to because we will not have experienced what they experienced. And that's exciting to me because that's the way singing ought to be today. Every time we sing to the Lord, it ought to come from my heart and from my experience. It's like the Psalms that you read. David writes from his experience and he comes up with a song to the Lord that he sings to him. That's the way it's going to be in heaven. And I wonder, as you analyze your own experience before the Lord, how many songs you're going to be able to sing in heaven. The things we experience now, the things we go through for the Lord and with the Lord now are sort of creating our repertoire, if you like, to be able to sing praise and glory to the Father one day. And so here we are in heaven, and the 144,000 are singing this new song because they're the only ones who can learn it, because they're the only ones who have experienced what they're singing about. And then he goes on in verses 4 and 5 to indicate some of the characteristics of these 144,000. And he mentions uh, four things. First of all, he mentions that they were faithful. Notice verse 4. He says, These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they are celibates. Now, there's two ways to take that. One is uh, literally, physically. Uh, and it may be that due to the nature of the tribulation period and the nature of their ministry, that they are going to remain celibate during this period of the tribulation when all of this is taking place. That is a possibility. Uh, however, if we take it literally, I do have a little problem with this because it seems to imply uh, that, you know, if, if they had chosen to be married, they would have defiled themselves with women. And that, Scripture doesn't teach that. Nowhere in Scripture is it taught that, that uh, sexual intercourse within marriage defiles anyone. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it says the marriage bed is undefiled. And so it's my tendency to lean over and, and possibly think that he's talking here more figuratively as he writes about this. And if we take it that way, then uh, what he's talking about is the idea of faithfulness. The false religious system in the period of tribulation is going to be symbolized by a harlot in Revelation chapter 17. A harlot, one who is unfaithful to God. 
And so here when he speaks about these 144,000, he says that they are the ones who abstain from any involvement with her. They are ones who are free from spiritual fornication. They are faithful to the Lord Jesus. And then there's a second characteristic about them, and that is they are followers of the Lamb. And that's in the middle of verse 4. It says, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. What a great statement. Would that we could say that. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Wherever he went. Just wherever he goes, they go. And of course, the Lord Jesus went ultimately to death. And so did these 144,000 witnesses, martyrs for the Lord Jesus. Their response is like Paul's on the Damascus Road when he, when he found out who the Lord was and he says, Lord, what shall I do? You tell me what to do and I'll do it. They were followers of the Lord Jesus. And then a third characteristic we find at the end of verse 4, and that is they are first fruits. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. First fruits were always an indication that there was more of a crop to come. They are the first fruits. In the Old Testament, the first fruits were always offered to God as an offering. And it was an indication that there was more crop to come in. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20, Christ is called the first fruits of resurrection. He was the first we will follow. In 1 Corinthians 16, 15, the household of Stephanus are referred to as the first fruits of Achaia. They were the first believers in Achaia. There were many more to come. And if these 144,000 are first fruits, you say, then who is the rest of the harvest? Well, we saw them actually back in Revelation chapter 7. And if you just turn back there, you'll see that in Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 to 8, the 144,000 are identified to us and then immediately afterwards in verse 9, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. We're introduced to this 144,000 witnesses, and immediately afterwards we see this multitude that no one can count from every nation and tribe and tongue that have come to the Lord. And if you turn over just to verse... Uh, 13 of that same chapter he says or in verse 14 it says and I said to him in question the, the question is who are these people and in verse 14 he says my Lord you know and he said to me these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb and so the 144,000 are first fruits they were sealed they were set apart to the Lord Jesus they were first fruits of a larger crop and they went out witnessing to all the nations and brought this tremendous crop in to the Lord. And so these Jewish witnesses will be the ones who stimulate the revival during the tribulation period and are only going to be the first fruits of a, of a greater crop to come. In fact, let me show you a verse. Look at, look at Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah. It's near the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 8 and the last verse in that chapter verse 23 just read one verse 
verse 23 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every language will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That's an exciting verse. Ten men from the nation are going to grab hold of a Jew when he comes by, say, we've heard that God is with you. They're going to be the evangelists during the tribulation period. And so they are the first fruits, as we see in Revelation chapter 14. And then we learn a fourth thing about them in, which, in their character in verse 5, and that is they're blameless. Verse 5 said, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. And, of course, the, the chief characteristic, if you like, of, of Satan is that he is the father of lies. And here are these 144,000 set apart for the Lord Jesus, following the Lord Jesus wherever he goes, and it says they are blameless. No lie was found in their mouth. Now, that, that doesn't mean they were perfect, because at the end of verse 4 it says they were purchased. They were redeemed. They are not perfect. They are simply blameless in the sense that they... Their desire to serve Jesus Christ and to walk with him uh, caused them to lean on his power to live a holy, consecrated life. They are blameless in word and blameless in deed. And so there are the characteristics of these 144,000. They are faithful. They are followers of the Lamb wherever he goes. They are first fruits, and they're blameless. Can you learn their song? Can you sing their song to the Lord? Uh, can you take those characteristics and apply them to your life today? The 144,000 are the first fruits of the harvest. Second thing we see about the harvest in chapter 14 is the final call. And that's in verses 6 and 7. Notice verse 6. It says, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Now, this is an unusual occurrence because angels don't preach the gospel. The gospel has been entrusted to us. In fact, if you'll remember in Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius was praying to the Lord, an angel came to Cornelius and said, Cornelius, send for Peter. And Peter came, and Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius. Now, the angel could have done it, but the gospel has not been entrusted to angels in this age. But in that day, God's two witnesses have been taken to heaven. The 144,000 are now in heaven. And it's kind of like God is saying, you killed all my witnesses, but I want to give you one more chance. And he sends an angel and uh, this is God's final call. It's like his last offer of grace to a world that just continues to reject him. And he sends out this angel preaching the eternal gospel. You say, well, what is the eternal gospel? Well, I could get into a lot of speculation on this, but I prefer to take the eternal gospel to be the same gospel that we preach. And there are a lot of people that write all kinds of things about this gospel and that gospel, but, uh, you know, it, it, Paul in Galatians said, uh, if anyone preaches any other gospel, let him be accursed. This is the same gospel. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.25, the word of the Lord abides 
forever. And the gospel that we have believed is the eternal gospel. And the message that this angel preaches is given to us at least in part in verse 7. Now, I don't think he gives us the total gospel message here because actually the earth already knows the gospel message. What we have in verse 7 is more or less an appeal. It's like, it's like the appeal at the end of it in verse 7. And here's what he says. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of, of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. During the tribulation period, human government and human achievement and human pride will be elevated to its highest level. Men will have their better world society. They'll have a unified world government. They'll have the greatest world ruler of all time who will be performing supernatural acts. And men will fear him. Men will glorify him. Men will worship him. And so the appeal from this angel is simple, and that is fear God rather than man, glorify God rather than man, worship God rather than man. And the motivation is that his judgment is coming. Harvest is coming. And as the world is falling for Satan's antichrist, this is God's final call. And then there's a third factor in this chapter, and that is the foretaste. And that's in verse 8. And he says, And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. One angel comes through. He's preaching the eternal gospel. Shortly thereafter, another angel comes through. And he's got another message. And his message pertains to Babylon the Great. Now, Babylon the Great is going to play a prominent role in the next few chapters in the book of Revelation. And I won't take the time this morning to tell you all about Babylon, but suffice it to say that the Babylon that he's referring to here is the false church in the tribulation period. And I'll support that in weeks to come. But when you get to chapter 17, we'll see a harlot there. And on the harlot's forehead will be written the word Mystery Babylon. And we'll find that harlot to be the false, the apostate church. The church is a virgin, uh, kept pure for the Lord Jesus. This, this system in the tribulation period is referred to as the harlot because it's false. And here, at the midpoint of the tribulation is when that false church is going to be destroyed. It's actually going to be destroyed by the Antichrist. We'll find that out in chapter 17. But at this midpoint, this, this church crumbles. It, 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 it is destroyed. It's disintegrated. And uh, this angel comes through, and he's pronouncing the fall of Babylon the Great. The apostate church has fallen, and that's going to be a foretaste of the harvest to come. And then there's a fourth point in this chapter, and that is the forecast. And that we see in verses 9 to 13. And in these verses, there are two forecasts given. There's a negative forecast, and there's a positive forecast. And first of all, the negative forecast in verses 9 to 11, and these are some of the more, most 
sobering verses you'll ever come across in Scripture. Verse 9 says, And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now, a third angel follows with a message, and he's given a forecast. It's one of those if-then situations. He says, if anyone worships the beast and his image, and if you receive the mark of the beast, then you will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And men in that day are going to be confronted with a challenging decision. If they don't worship the beast, they're going to face the wrath of the beast, which is mentioned in chapter 13 and verse 15. They're going to be put to death. If they do worship the beast, they're going to face the wrath of God. You say, well, how bad is the wrath of God? Well, I was thinking about how you measure judgment. And I was thinking probably the, the best two ways to measure judgment is to ask the questions, how much and how long? What's the intensity of it and what's the duration of it? That's kind of what my boys ask me. Uh, you know, they, they come home, they, well, I'll, I'll tell on them. Their mom isn't even here today. Uh, they come home with their report cards and they got these uh, conduct problems. And... Uh, their question is, you know, what, what's, what's it going to involve and how long am I going to be grounded? You know, that's the question. Uh, and we, we laid that out so they understood what it was going to be. Well, if we ask that question in this chapter, how much wrath is God going to pour out? What will be the intensity? Notice verse 10 again. He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Literally, it is the wine of God's wrath that will be unmixed. God's going to pour out his wrath, and it's going to be straight wrath. It's going to be untempered by the grace and mercy of God. He's not going to mingle in a little grace with it. He's going to give his wrath straight. In fact, if you notice the phraseology here, the very cup that men will have to drink out is called out of is called the cup of his anger. He pours out his wine, the wine of his wrath, full strength in the cup of his anger. I don't know how you get the wording more uh, vivid that this is the intensity of the judgment of God. And then to be more specific and more realistic about what's going to happen, notice the end of verse 10. It says, And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Tormented with fire and with brimstone. That's the intensity of the wrath of God, and I don't even know how to expound on that. I mean, uh, man will be tormented with fire and brimstone. And you say, well, 
how long will God pour it out? What's the duration? Notice verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Jesus called it in Matthew 25, 41, the eternal fire forever. And just so you don't miss it, he says in the rest of verse 11, and they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Just in case you miss it, it's forever and there are no breaks. They will have no rest day and night. And that's something. The intensity of it will be torment and fire, and the duration of it will be continuous forever. You say, well, uh, that seems kind of extreme. See, how could a loving God allow men to go to hell forever? Well, I want you to look back at verse 10 at the end at a phrase that we overlooked. And verse 10 says, He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. There are two implications here. And the number one implication is that they are going to be in torment and that they are going to be able to see the Lamb. They're in the presence of the Lamb. They're going to be able to see the one that they have rejected. And if he stands there, he's going to stand there with the marks of Calvary. You see, when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, try to grasp this, he suffered all the punishment of hell forever on the cross. He had to. He had to pay for our sins. So in that moment on, on Calvary, he experienced everything of the punishment of hell. And there he stands, and these people are going to be in torment in his presence, looking at what, who they rejected, because the price had already been paid. The price has been paid by the Lord Jesus on Calvary. He's already suffered that, and he offers salvation to man. And so, as he stands there, he's a, a solemn reminder that the price was paid and they rejected it. But then I think there's another implication here, and that is that they suffer in the presence of the Lamb, which tells me that God's wrath is justified. Jesus doesn't have to put them there and then walk away and try to forget about it. They're there in the presence of the Lamb. It's justified. Now, I've had people tell me before that uh, they think that when we get to heaven, that God's going to give us some kind of insomnia powder to help us to forget that hell exists and that people are there. I think that's absurd. I think what God will do is, is bring us to an understanding of the justification of hell. And we won't have to forget about hell because hell is justified. It's right for God to send man there in fact. The only thing that's wrong is that we don't all go there because of the consequences of sin. But that's the grace of God, that he poured out the judgment of hell on the Lord Jesus. And we're out of time. So let me tell you one other thing. 
and that is this. I have had people tell me, I've had people sit and say to me, you know, we'd talk for a while, and then they'd say, you know, just between me and you, you don't really believe that there's a hell, do you? You don't really believe that, you know, God's going to really send people there. You know, I believe, if you look back at verse 7, I believe there's a formula here. And the formula is, fear God and glorify Him and worship Him. And I don't think you can really worship God until you fear God. And I don't think you can truly worship God until you understand that God is a just God and that He must punish sin. And you will never get to the point of really appreciating grace until you understand His judgment. And that begins with, a, with an initial, at least, understanding of the fear of God. God is a righteous God, and He judges sin. And that's not going to change. He can't bend that. But God has taken His judgment, and He's poured it out on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, and He offers that grace free of charge, salvation. And when I accept that grace, that causes me to worship God because I understand what I deserve and what God has delivered me from. And until I understand that, word, that, that concept that God must judge sin, I don't think I ever become a worshiper of God because I never fully appreciate His grace. And so this morning we've looked at a tough passage, a challenging passage. It, it shook me this week because I think sometimes you study a passage and it's just kind of there and sometimes it kind of gets you. You know, it kind of opens you up to the reality of it. And this passage has done that to me, and I trust that it will to you. And I don't know where you're at in relationship to the Lord Jesus, but there's a harvest coming. And we are the crop. And I trust that you will be one who will go into the presence of the Lord, shining like the sun in his kingdom. But there will be those who will be cast into the fire for eternity. Those are the two places, and the only two. And so I guess I would challenge you this morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, that you would bow the knee to him today and that you would come to faith in him, not out of fear alone, but out of his grace that he offers. He has offered the way of salvation to you. And I would challenge you to come to know him. And then I would challenge those of us who know him today to realize that hell is a real place and real people go there. And to be motivated to share the eternal gospel with those around us in this world who are lost and don't know the Lord Jesus. Let's pray today. Father, we thank you for your word today. And we thank you for this passage of Scripture which, although it's not pleasant to go through, gives us insight into the reality of, of the of the character of sin and what sin deserves. And Lord, I pray as we get a fresh view of this that we might be truly drawn to the one who has suffered in our place, the Lord Jesus. That if there are any here today who don't know him, that they might come to know him. And for those of us who already know him, that we might be those who follow the Lamb wherever we go. 
and that we might share the good news of salvation with those in a lost world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.